You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Janet, member here at Northway, um, and I get I have the privilege and joy to get to read scripture over us today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis 36, verses 1 through 3 and six through eight. And if you don't have one, there should be a Bible available to you underneath the seat in front of you. Genesis 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ida, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Ena, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimuth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Verse six. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Labor Day weekend, everybody. Yeah, celebrate the work. Tell you what, we, it, it was interesting to come in this morning. This is, um, it was a gift to just see how many staff are here before 8 a.m. spread around this room, praying together and lifting up our time together. We have a really, really neat church. So many faithful individuals who are diving in and really putting in work. I know it's Worship, but man, it just it, there's some sweat equity that goes into this place from a zillion volunteers, particularly those on parking duty. But the traditions that we have here are, are special, and I think the work lays the foundation for those. Going to Backpack Day this summer, getting to uh, go on the Israel trip, kind of a new tradition that we started. One of my favorite traditions that I just recently learned about is this Thursday morning running club. I haven't been, but I hereby commit to go. And, and uh, they meet on Beauty Lane. And so therefore, fittingly, they call the house the salon. And they meet on Thursdays. And this is how they begin this running club right here every single week. The Fruit Ninja Slice. Look at that. Just chuck a watermelon in the air. There's Chris Coyne. He's this his brainchild. They got a you know, dozen or so. They go out and run a few miles afterward. Like what a great way to get some exercise, but have a little crazy fun in the, in the process. I'm still learning things about this church I'm still learning things apparently about um, who we are as a country. I saw a couple weeks ago that the Barbie movie has now surpassed The Dark Knight as Warner Brothers' all-time domestic money earner. Like, how does that happen? I, some of you all have seen it. Maybe you love it. Our staff went and saw it the other day. This is them rocking their pink. Look at that. Yo, oh my. I didn't see that in the line budget at the, in the line. I didn't see that line item at the budget meeting on Sunday, but... We'll let them off the hook. I tried to wear my pink in honor of, uh, of, of the Barbie excellence, the, the success that the movie has had. Anytime something's that successful, draws that kind of reaction, you're gonna get lots of pros, lots of cons. Some people love that movie. Some people hate it. I've got no opinion. Haven't been there. Haven't seen it. But my wife showed me a clip and I felt like it was very much good for setting the stage for what we're examining today in Genesis 36. Now I'll tell you on the front end, spoiler alert, Barbie becomes a real person, okay? And in, in doing so, she has a conversation with her former doll owner and the doll owner talks to her about being a real woman 
and the insurmountable pressure that is placed on women. Here's what she says. You know, it's literally impossible to be a woman. You're so beautiful and so smart, Barbie, and it kills me that you don't think you're enough. Like, we as women, we have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. You have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy. But also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to, be, you have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the time. You have to be a career woman, but always be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane, but if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or threaten other women because you're supposed to be part of the sisterhood. But always stand out and always be grateful, but never forget that the system is rigged. So find a way to acknowledge that, but still also be grateful. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory and nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every other, single, every other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And if all that is also true for a doll just representing women, then I don't even know. Lord, we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on you. There are so many pressures around us to live up to certain expectations, but your love is enough. Remind us of that today, we pray in Christ's name, amen. My wife cried when she showed me that clip because she can relate. It's just like no matter how many times she and I have the conversation that comparison is the thief of joy, we still fall into the same trap. It's like the more aware I become of my own brokenness, the more I realize like I don't even know how broken I am. I've got so many holes in who I am that like, people are probably out there gossiping about me. I don't even, I, I don't know. And if, if I can't trust that I know myself and I can't trust that others know themselves and we can't trust each other, it's just natural. I'm gonna almost be like a recluse and kind of go into my own little world where at least I know what I can expect through me and just stiff arm everybody else. And if God's the one that created this whole thing and we're supposed to be creating his image, then we have to question whether or not he's a good God and a good creator. I mean, even Adam and Eve, Look at them, they are Barbie and Ken in the real life talk. They show up out of nowhere, they just exist. Cool grass beneath their feet, amazed by the sky, and yet they figure out that, man, there's this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and I don't think that what God's given me is enough. I'm not sure I can trust him. I wanna know what evil is in addition to what he has called good. And so, as you know, Creation breaks apart because of Adam and Eve finding evil and, and wanting to just dive in and not trust God in the process. And that set off a couple, uh, I guess the beginning of last year, we began studying the book of Genesis and have been in it now for I think 20 months. And it's organized with these toledotes, these lists of birthings where you've got a big group of names and then some explanation. And so we go from Adam and Eve down through Cain and Abel, Noah, and we eventually get to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham comes from Ur, Babylon. He's a pagan. He's not something special. He's no kin. Sarah's no Barbie. They're just an old couple. And that makes them perfect vessels because God doesn't use cleaned up perfect Barbies. God demonstrates his love through people who can never attain righteousness on their own. All Abraham does to attain righteousness is believe. And God credits his belief to him as righteousness. Because righteousness never has and never will be attainable through our works. 
It's not like circumcision. The sign of the covenant given to him was what saved him. It was circumcision of the heart, an inner change through faith. Now, we know that compromise continued to be rife throughout his life and throughout the lives of his descendants. And we get all the way down to Genesis 25, where infertility has created some frustration. We saw that play itself out in multiple ways in Abraham's life. And then again, in Isaac's wife, Isaac's life, his wife, Rebecca, tried to have a kiddo for 20 years. And Isaac prays to God. And finally, it's answered that Isaac gets to have a couple of kiddos on the way, but he doesn't know exactly what's in the womb. And Rebecca, amidst her pain, calls out to God. And God says, I want you to know, inside your womb, there are two nations. And here's a little sneak peek. The older will serve the younger. Sure enough, twins. Everybody's happy, celebrating. They come out, Esau the first. They're quite a bit different. They have some similarities, but man, the two are so vastly different, as you recall. Esau being this little hairy guy, that's what his name means, Esau Harry, and Jacob hanging on to his heel. The heel grabber Jacob, which is also an idiom in Hebrew to cheat. And so this age-old wrestling match is on. The strapping outdoorsman meat-eater versus the quiet, smooth-skinned, wily mama's boy. And Rebecca has to love the fact that Jacob dwells in the tents and is hanging around her all the time because she knows the promise that he is gonna be the greater of the two. We don't exactly know whether or not she ever tells Isaac. Scripture doesn't let us know if he's in on this reality, but for whatever reason, Isaac takes a liking to Esau far more. They're just two birds of a feather. And Esau, man, he likes to go out and hunt and do all the things his dad likes. I can just imagine Isaac pulling Esau aside as a little boy and be like, hey, bud, look up in the sky, man. Look at those stars. You know, I wish you could have met your grandpa. He used to take me out under the stars and he told me one time that God showed him that big old Milky Way. And he said that our descendants, the number of folks in our family are gonna exceed all the stars we see in the sky. You, little Esau, man, you're one of those stars. I'm one of those stars. He had to have reminded Esau time and time again about those promises, but Jacob knew them too. And Jacob knew that he was not the firstborn. And so he was looking for every opportunity to seize some privilege. And we know the story where Esau's out hunting. He comes back famished and Jacob has a pot of stew. And Esau's like, man, give me some of that stew. And he's like, I, 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 it's gonna cost you. So I'm about to die. I'll do you anything. Hey, give me your birthright. I want, the, I want to be the, the one who deserves all the blessings of the covenant. Esau spurns his birthright, trades it for a pot of stew. Isaac must have been absolutely heartbroken. Well, in the back of his mind, though, I have to wonder if maybe he thought that God had blessed him so much, he might be able to reverse things. And so he saves this big blessing for right before he dies, calls Esau in to bless him. And Rebecca this time is the wily one, like her son, Jacob. And she's the one that talks Jacob into putting on some skins and going in there smelling like Esau, feeling like Esau, because Isaac's pretty, pretty blind at this point. And Isaac gives the blessing that's supposed to go in his mind to Esau he gives that blessing to Jacob. First time when the birthright was taken, Esau seemed pretty chill. But when the, when the blessing was taken, boy, he's ready to kill. So we have two different names, Jacob, Esau. And what's interesting is those names get changed again from Jacob, Esau to Israel and Edom. Israel, the one who wrestles with God and overcomes, seems kind of like a strange name to me because as I recall in that story, God knocked his hip out of socket. But Esau's name is a little more descriptive, Edom, Red, I had a fast this past week because I know as a church, we're trying to talk through ways to fast. 
And so I broke my fast Esau style with some lentils. They look kind of black on screen there, but yeah, there's some reddish sort of hue there. I didn't exactly know what lentils were because I don't really eat them. I don't like them, but hunger is the best sauce. And so they tasted pretty good to me. Two different names, two different nations. Again, just talking about differences between these two boys. Genesis 25, like I mentioned before, is the promise where Rebecca is told, two nations are in your womb, two peoples. The older will serve the, the younger. And it becomes true. There are, in fact, two nations. Esau's takes off, flourishing like crazy, man. He's got this 400-man army. Remember when he and Jacob reconcile? And we're kind of nervous that maybe Jacob's gonna get killed by Esau because of the anger that he had over the stolen blessing. Esau shows up with a 400-man army. He forgives Jacob. He seems altogether unthreatened by Jacob. Maybe he's grown up, matured, but he joins Jacob at their parents' funerals. He lives in the land with Jacob for a while, invites Jacob to do life together. Jacob, on the other hand, things are off to a little rockier start. I mean, he just doesn't seem to be quite as lucky. He gets a dose of his own medicine when he goes off to Laban's place and works to get Rachel for seven years. And he, Laban tricks him and gives him Leah instead. But the, I, I laugh because my wife's name is Leah and her sister's name is Rachel. And they're both here today. And I married Leah. So you can pray for me. No, they're both fantastic, but I have to say that. <laughs> Cheated by Laban. Uh, boy, their wi- Jacob's wives struggle with inter- infertility. Um, and he still gets a whole lot of blessing, but there's got to be some little bro insecurities that are setting in here. Isaac and Rebecca. There might have been a point in time where they thought to themselves, you know, we, we're confident that Jacob's supposed to be the one based on what God said and the blessing we've given. But like Esau's just off to such a hot start. He's killing it. Like maybe he's... The, the chosen one after all, and we just got something wrong. I mean, I wouldn't want Esau to come to this church. If he walked in, I'd be like, hey, hey, I hear you live over there in the mountains of White Rock, you know, like, can I just uh, send you the address and you can go on over there? Like, I think they got a service starting in 15 minutes. Go over to Eastside Church, man, they got some, some good music I hear. Brett, uh, Adam is a, a fabulous preacher. I wouldn't want him to meet the elders here. They'd be like, Guyler, we're gonna have to have an emergency meeting right away. Like, have you met Esau? Like, it's been a good run, pal, but we're gonna just go ahead and make a switch right now. Esau's in his enough. He's already agreed to mentor every single one of us, so thanks for your time, but I wouldn't want to meet my wife. This guy's a ladies' man. Did you catch the names that Janet read? Oh, holy bama. What a, she's gotta be good looking. Base math, Ishmael's daughter. And by the way, Ishmael got a toledote. He's a pretty prominent guy in this story. Only six verses compared to Isaac's 10 chapters, but he had, I, Ishmael had 12 princes. And so the fact that Ishmael's lineage is now combining with Esau's, once again, the blessing seems like maybe it's in jeopardy. Like, could it be that Esau is the Barbie-like standard of perfection? Should we be patterning our lives after that rather than looking at this kind of loser Jacob? And if you fast forward a few hundred years, it doesn't seem like things have changed a whole lot. Moses receives the Pentateuch and he's reading Genesis or, or the folks have access to Genesis as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. And the reality is like, things still look kind of bleak for Jacob at this point. Here's a little map on uh, the journey that Abe made from the Middle East over here in Babylon. He travels along this and gets over here into this nice little fertile crescent. And 
Jacob and Esau, they live there for a good while together. They're accruing all sorts of kids and cattle and concubines. They end up burying their parents in Machpelah, which would have been right there in Hebron, west of the Dead Sea. Great place to float if you get a chance to go to Israel. Had a fun time there this summer. And eventually, after burying their parents, then they go their separate ways. And we see Esau come down here into this vicinity, and he dwells in these mountains of Seir. Jacob, as we know, ends up down here in Egypt. And that's where our story is gonna go in the next months to come because we're gonna learn about the slavery that the Israelites are gonna endure, that Jacob's descendants are gonna, are gonna incur. And then the Exodus, like why, why is it that after they get freed from slavery and they're told to go back to this promised land, why is it that they're not just following this little path like they came the first time? Going right up here. Well, we know that the Egyptians chased them at first and that's what led to them crossing the Red Sea here at the Northern Tip. But then why not veer north? Why do they keep coming down south? It turns out that right in this area, we've got some mighty warriors and God in his grace tells Moses, let's not take them that direction. We know that you and I both know I can get them through this, but they don't know that. I don't want them to get discouraged and want to go back to Egypt. So he calls them down here to Mount Sinai. It's like, well, if you weren't intimidated enough going through Philistine country where you might run into Goliath, not really, since he was quite a bit later, but his, his, ancestor, his uh, you know, previous predecessors. But Mount Sinai would have been a whole lot scarier with the presence of God there. So they're pretty intimidated. Remember, they're like, oh, we might die if we go up onto that mountain. And Moses goes up for him and receives the law. The spies, they continue this theme of intimidation. They don't want to make the trek into the promised land after they go from this direction to go scope it out and come back. They're like, there's giants living in the land. I don't think we can do it. And we end up, you know, they end up ultimately entering 40 years later, right over here on the Jordan River. But the fact that they had to wander for 40 years before getting to enter, man, just think about how hot they are, how beat down. When Moses is telling them Genesis 36 and sharing the Pentateuch with them, he's not talking to a bunch of people that are real encouraged. They are altogether discouraged. The promised land looks like a tall order. I can't imagine anybody there feeling real confident. Yes, the nation had grown in size at that point, but when you looked at the other civilizations, like they didn't hold a candle. Esau's descendants, on the other hand, oh, they got things figured out. They're looking bigger and badder than ever. And we heard a portion of Genesis 36 read earlier, but take a look at verse 15 there in your Bible. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. So it lists all the names of these chiefs, big timers. Skip down to verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Like, well, wait a second, where'd those guys come from? Well, after parting ways with Jacob, Esau apparently went south to this more elevated region called Seir, puts his bow staff skills on full display, conquers the land, and absorbs this people group. And they had to be pretty good fighters. Their first part of their name, Hor, means cave. So they obviously know how to fight in the caves and in the crags, crags and cliffs. And for Esau to just show up and take over and make them part of his nationality was impressive. Look at verse 24. This Anah guy shows up. He is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. So this guy is close with his father. There's a nice tight-knit family-first community that seems where sons are taken after their dads, kind of like Esau did with Isaac. And they're experiencing random blessings like stumbling across a bunch of hot springs. I bet Anah was one popular guy. Started the first ever spa. Come hang out in my hot tubs and watch the sunset here on the mountainside. I'd like to have been that guy's agent. Verse 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. No longer just chiefs, they're moving up in the world. They got kings now. And one of the guys mentioned, verse 33, 34, Jobab. It could possibly be Job from the Bible, who you know, has his own book named after him. 
Edom at one time became known as a wisdom literature capital of sorts. And since various references seem to place us in Edom, this could be the Job. Now it is interesting that King Jobab and quite a few of the other kings aren't succeeded by their sons, which probably means there's a lot of tyranny going on. We got some games of, Game of Thrones kind of backstabbing and nobody's able to pass the, the, the torch along to their own kindred. They're getting knocked off. But the, 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 I think what we're supposed to see here is that man, it's becoming an empire. Edom is no longer just some little group of ragtag guys like the Israelites are feeling. It's an empire. And don't forget we read earlier that Esau shrewdly merged the lineage with Ishmael. Genesis 16, 12 predicted that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he would live in hostility toward all his brothers. So think about Esau's rugged genes combining with that wild man. Like this is a nation that's picking up some serious momentum. A lot of other nuggets throughout Genesis 36. Lots of rich meanings behind some of the names and whatnot, but the most repeated line gives us a vigilant reminder that these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And so why is it that this writer Moses is reminding him of that? Well, he's trying to convince the people there in Israel that they're good enough. Yeah, you're looking over there at these people at Edom, you might think that that's the Barbie kind of standard, but it's not. To me, it doesn't seem very motivating when you're comparing a thriving community with, with our little ragtag group of, of former slaves. Seems to me like if you put the guys out there and had a fruit ninja slice at the beginning, they'd go fly into the promised land, pretty excited. But reminding them of God's love is even better. Right? It's, God's love is the only thing that has a chance of drowning out the pressure and perfection all around us. And this is the biggie. Genesis 36 confirms that the Abrahamic covenant is true. God's love is only valid if he's a promise keeper. If he breaks his promises, then you have to question whether or not he's a committed God or a committed, a committed uh, advocate. So Genesis 12 reminds us of the first time God approaches Abraham. I will make you a great nation, singular. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God comes back again in, in chapter 15 because there's some lack of faith on Abraham's part, understandably. He and his wife are really old. And so he's like, well, God, are you sure you didn't mean this Eliezer guy, my faithful servant here? And God reiterates the promise. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. A little bit of a qualification there since Abe seems a little confused. He does the whole look at the sky thing and number of stars, like that's coming from you, Abraham, those, the, the, this, these offspring. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You can count on me. I give you this land to possess. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. A third time, God comes back and confirms the covenant. This time on the heels of Abram thinking, you know, I wonder if maybe God meant that I was supposed to sleep with my handmaiden because there's no way my old wife and in her 80s, 90s, can possibly have a kiddo. That's just, that can't happen. And so Ishmael is born and God, instead of like raining down condemnation and saying, would you just be patient and trust me a little bit? He doesn't do that. He shows up and he names Abram, Abraham, instead of exalted father, father of many nations. Changes Sarah's wife a little bit, Sarah's name a little bit too. But he, that when the covenant is reiterated, it's behold, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Some things have changed. Catch that progression there. I will bless, and then he turns his attention to Sarah, which is so cool because she's got to be in pain having watched her husband 
you know, go off with Hagar and, and, and want her blessing in the process. But God says to Sarah, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give her a son. I will give you a son by her. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abram's like, oh, can't Ishmael just be the guy? Like we've already gotten him. You know, he seems like a good boy. And he says, no, Sarah, your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So again, Genesis 36 reminds us that God is faithful. Not only do we see Jacob's blessings, that's to come in the chapters ahead, but we're being reminded that God is reliable. He's faithful. And he graciously includes all these illegitimate children into the covenantal promises. Like what an amazing God. Instead of just stiff-arming Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all their compromise, he welcomes in and just loves them and, and considers them righteous because of their faith rather than their works. Now, are all, are all families, in your opinion, really blessed by Abraham? That was the promise. Are all families today blessed by Abraham? I would say as Christians, we can confidently look back and say, wow, God had an amazing plan over the course of 2,000 years for Abraham's seed to just incredibly land in Bethlehem where Jesus is born he, the descendant of Abraham, carrying on the promise, living a perfect life, and then dying for the sins of mankind so that we can have salvation by grace through faith rather than anything we did. Like that is a free invitation to the whole world that we can experience the covenant blessings of Abraham because of, well, I, there should probably be a little bit of a caveat there, but we can experience God's fullest blessing because of what Jesus has done for us at Calvary. Just in the Yes, God has blessed all families, faithfully has blessed all families. But if I'm an Israelite in 1400 BC or any number of Jews at various stages during their painful world history, I'm ready to see a little bit more blessing to us rather than through us. Right? And particularly when it comes to Esau, like why should we care about his blessing? He doesn't care about us. And that's where Moses reminds his readers, like, no, 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 you're looking at it all wrong. If Edom is flourishing, it means that God is keeping his promise, which means big time blessings are on the horizon for us if we can patiently trust and obey. No blessing, no, no blessing, it's not a blessing just as good as Edom. We're talking way, way, way better. And uh, Esau, man, he took, his, he, he, he took his family up into the hills of Edom. If, if he wants to go on up there and spurn the birthright on the cheap, then we'll let him but we're not gonna follow after that plastic Barbie, that fake kind of lifestyle. We're gonna trust that God's got something better because he does, man. There's nothing better than you. You turn graves into gardens. Dun, 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 dun. You turn bones into armies. Dun, 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 dun. You turn seas into highways, right? These people just came out of the Red Sea. And if I'm an Edomite sitting up on my hill and I'm looking down and I see these guys who've stormed through the, the, the wilderness and gone through the sea, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. Like, whoa, where do these people come from? I thought little brother got lost along the way in Egypt. I didn't know that he even existed. We're talking half a millennia ago almost that, we, that they disappeared from this region. What's going on? Like, where did they come from? And one of the Edomites is like, actually, I heard there was this whole host of plagues that, that, that afflicted 
Egypt and they got to escape. And then they went through the Red Sea. The whole thing sounds kind of made up, right? But they would have been rubbing their eyes, unsure, looking down, thinking, boy, little brother's back? And we're gonna see more brotherly shock in weeks to come with Joseph's story. But I bet the Edomites started combing through all their wisdom literature fast, looking for some sort of random oracle or something, hard to say. But what is evident is that the Edomites suddenly did grow protective of the, of the land. Numbers 20, they wouldn't let Israel even pass through on their way to the promised land. Such a big brother thing to do, right? You can't come into my room. I'll go into your room. And that's what Edom does. They actually now get jealous and start wanting to go down and take over the promised land. A little buyer's remorse, maybe. And why do you think Esau left in the first place? Is it possible that it was a Lot situation where Abraham and Lot kind of grew too big and Lot just went and took the lusher land? Maybe, maybe Esau genuinely wanted to help Jacob, felt kind of bad after hating him all those years. Did he just want to get away from Jacob, annoying little brother? Maybe Esau didn't believe in the covenant promises anymore. My conviction is I think Esau simply chose it. God wants for Israel to see that Esau chose his land. And so not only is Israel moving into this promised land God-ordained, but Esau gave it to them. They have rights to that land. It's theirs. It belongs to them. They should be confident in going in. And when they don't, if they choose not to, there are consequences because the reality is every single person who's part of God's covenant promises is being used as a mechanism of communicating his blessing to others. If they lack faith, there are broad consequences in the lives of other nations and families that God promised to bless through them. Here's my weak analogy. I, my mom is the goddess of cooking in my household growing up. And she had this wooden spoon. And that wooden spoon could be used for multiple purposes. My favorite was when it was about 5 p.m. and I could smell a little oregano in the air and I knew it was spaghetti night. And she had that spoon stirring the tomato sauce. And she saw me walk through the kitchen and said, hey, Greg, let me give you a little sip of, of this. You want some? It's like, oh, yes, I'm starving. Can I have another one? Can I have another one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the instrument of blessing allowing for me to just enjoy the, the fruits of her labor. But some nights, she wouldn't give me that privilege. Maybe we had guests coming over, and so she fixed her favorite dish, supreme ovelet de champignon. That was her like, cream dish on chicken and mushrooms, and ah, oh, I just thought it was the best dish. But I would smell that, and she'd say, no, you go set the table. You don't have any. We're going to feed the guests first. Wait for them. Then there was a third usage of that spoon. When I was acting up, that spoon wasn't getting used for food. She was coming into my room with that spoon and whacking me. So we see that an instrument can be used for blessing people in a direct way, blessing others indirectly, maybe at what feels like my expense, and thirdly, can be used as a blessing via judgment. God is really faithful to use his people in all three methods. The fact that Esau didn't fight Jacob for the land means the land isn't under dispute and they should confidently go in and seize it back. That's the blessing that belongs to them. That land is theirs. But I'm gonna have show another map here. And the second two blessings, or the second the second and third way in which Israel could be used as a means of blessing entails helping those who aren't necessarily direct recipients of the covenant, but are on the periphery. A lot of us, 
when we read these stories, don't realize that God didn't just allot land to Israel and Judah, which, you know, split after Solomon finished his reign. This right here, Ammon, Moab, Edom, those are reserved lands that God set for them because of his promises to Abraham. These two up here, Ammon and Moab, descendants of Lot. And because of Abraham, God blessed Lot in that, in that significant way. Edom down here, again, Esau's land. But those are individuals who benefited in a, in a periphery sort of way because of, of, uh, of Abraham and the, pro- and the promise made to him. In the land here, however, we would have had some individuals who were not promised anything. The Hivites, the Hittites, those would have been like descendants of Canaan, the, the son of the cursed Ham. And those individuals, they were shown God's love through Israel coming in to wipe them out. Israel was told to go and wipe them out. Now I have, I have to believe based on stories like Jonah, where we see God give a warning to Nineveh, that God probably gave them every opportunity, but ultimately because he loves them, not because he despises them, but because he wants them to turn and give their attention to him and understand fullest life, he uses Israel as an instrument of judgment. Eventually, the Ammonites and the Moabites on the outside, they decide, you know what? This land isn't enough. We're gonna go take over some of the promised land. And the minute you go from being a periphery sort of beneficiary of, of Abraham's blessing, the minute you go from that to going after Abraham, remember the covenant that we read, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Psalm 83, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. That's a group speaking about Israel. And now the commentator says, for they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagrites, those are the, the, the offspring of Hagar, Ammon, Amalekites, Philistia, Tyre, Asher, the, the strong arm of the children of Lot. So all these individuals are now conspiring with some sort of covenant of their own to try to overpower the covenant that God has put into effect. And God's like, ah, you, you guys don't have a clue In fact, I think it's kind of ironic that Esau's firstborn son, Eliphaz, name means Elohim is gold. He births a son, Kenaz, who ultimately, it seems, there's a little speculation, but he seems to become the, the, he seems to have a descendant by the name of Caleb. You recognize that name. He was the right-hand man of Joshua. And so an Edomite, a man of Edomite blood was used by God to charge the people into the promised land. Now, over time, because Edom and other kingdoms began to attack Israel, they begin to weaken like those kingdoms. Edom loses some momentum. During, the kings, during King Saul and King David, they actually become subservient to the, uh, the Israelites. And so the, the prophecy given to Rebekah comes true. But Edom throws in a few last cheap shots. Here's one just horrific one. This is 586 BC, the Babylonians... Ironic that Abraham came from Babylonian and now the Babylonians come into southern part of Judah that we saw on the map there and they tear it to pieces. They set it on fire and the folks that are there watching with admiration are the Edomites. This is Psalm 137. From the perspective of a psalmist who is over in captivity in Babylon weeping, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, tear it down to its foundations. Whew. Edom 
showed their absolute hatred for their Jewish counterparts. And they just watched gleefully as Babylon burns their little brothers to the ground and takes them off into captivity. Obadiah 8 through 12, this kind of recounts it, but also adds a little judgment. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You weren't just there watching, you were like one of them. Ezekiel says it this way, thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast and I will make it desolate. God doesn't mess around when it comes to protecting his called children. Here's another cheap shot though. Quite a bit later, perhaps the most notorious descendant of Esau ever, Herod the Great. Ironic that he's the king of Judea when he learns of Jesus' birth and then orders this Edomite as the king of Judea. And he orders the execution of all males two years and younger. 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus? That can't just be a fluke of human history, right? If you don't think there's some sort of spiritual war going on all around, wake up and armor up because it's real. Of course, Herod met an ugly demise eaten by worms, we're told. And there's some different historians that have some pretty colorful explanations for what that means. But the Abrahamic covenant works both ways. You, everybody, the world is loved by God and is going to benefit in some way from his blessings to his people. But if you want to go against them, he will come after you Revelation 19 style. On a white horse he rides with flame in his eye and his name tattooed on his thigh. With a robe and blood dipped and a sword from his lips, he'll righteously rule on high, faithful and true. Word of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. Those are the names ascribed. Why don't we operate with that kind of confidence? You know, we've got an advocate, a warrior on our side who loves us, who has communicated to us just how blessed we are and how, how special our calling is. Like, I appreciated very much what, what Brett said about boldly engaging at work. Um, Every single day that you wake up is a chance to go engage with other people meaningfully. Right? The Israelites are standing on the cusp of the promised land and they just are nervous about going in. Like Moses, tongue-tied. Can I really be used by God? Yes, you can be used by God because it's not about you. It's about God. And yet we get to work on Monday and it's like, Ugh, is it Friday yet? Ugh. Like, no, we were created to work. Get after it. Enjoy that opportunity. Those little interactions, those small smiles, those small handshakes, just tiny little passes by. Maximize them. Engage. Like, I love the idea of sharing the truth about Jesus Christ and what he's done to save sinners. We don't deserve that in the least. Man, he loved us. We have a problem. There's a penalty. But there was a provision that Jesus came and died in our place and the promises we get to live forever. I want to go out and tell the whole world. If you want to go out and have a conversation with other folks, man, send me an email. I would love to do so. But here's one thing to keep in mind. Like you, in some form or fashion, like you are the gospel. So show up. Get to your workplace. Always be on. It's not about you having some sort of Barbie-like excellence. Your perfection is not going to win people over. One of my biggest frustrations is, is uh, as a teacher 
is like watching kids who want to get great grades but not look like they're trying. Like there's this kind of cool little thing. If I don't look like I'm doing well, but I just kind of kill it. And, and I think that's, we don't grow out of that. But uh, man, it's, it's not about how good you are and what you've done. It's, it's not about how you look and how you're perceived. It's about whose you are. Are you a child of these promises? Have you put your faith and trust in who he is? Do you believe that God loves you and that he wants to use you? Like it's such a shame that the Israelites never really go into the promised land and take over. They never do it. They kind of hedge their bets just like their ancestors and they never quite get there. Like, kills me. We have to show up on days like this and remind each other of God's love for us because if there's one thing that Genesis 36 teaches us, it's that we can be confident in God's promises. If God can be this generous to a, a man that Hebrews calls godless, Esau, if he's that generous in blessing him and using him and, and giving him every opportunity, then like, do you not understand like how empowered we are to go out and change the world? Like that is changing the world. It's not inventing some sort of technology that does so. Like you going out and being salt and light rather than hiding in your own little cave, that is impactful in profound ways. I talked about the different names, the different nations, there's actually a lot of similarities when you think about the narratives of Jacob and Esau. They both amassed a ton of wealth. They both began these ever-growing families. They both were marked by jealousy and compromise. They both spent time intentionally outside of the promised land, maybe not fully trusting God's promises, but they're both fully blessed in so many ways. But there's one major difference in victory that takes you to Edom versus Eden. The toll road to Edom is uphill and paved with red from striving and straining and a lot of cutthroat get-ahead savvy. The path to Eden, on the other hand, beckons only your surrender. Edom is traversed through bloodthirstiness. Eden is received through faith in the bloodshed of an all-sufficient sacrifice. Esau found Edom. Jacob, in a lot of ways, was on that same path until God graciously met him, knocked his hip out of socket, and Jacob put up the white flag of surrender. Esau won through winning and winning and winning on repeat. Jacob won through losing and limping and ultimately learning that the sufficiency of God's love is forever better than what any sort of put-together Barbie version we can create in our own minds or that society creates for us. Be confident in your calling. Get after it. We're gonna pray and I'm gonna offer three prayers and ask you that you would consider praying one or more of these prayers every day this week. Uh, maybe you're a person who's not able to really confidently say that I know what God's love looks like. So the prayer, first prayer that I would offer is, God, I truly don't know what it means to be loved by you. Please teach me. Ask him that. Prayer number two. Maybe you consider yourself loved by God, but you too often forget. And so just ask God, you know, I, I so often forget. Would you please remind me of the confidence I can have in you? Pray that, Lord, would you just increase our confidence in your love.
And then number three, God, how can I be a better conduit of your love to others? Enlighten me by your spirit to confidently serve and encourage others, always looking for opportunities to be salt and light for others' edification and your glory. Like, Lord, help us to be better conduits of your love. You are a good God. You are better than any other standard of perfection that we may invent. And we ask, Lord, that you would just help us to trust you more, help us to love others better, and keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.